If you have your Bibles or Scripture journals, and I hope that you do, I want to invite you to open with me to Luke in chapter 3. Luke in chapter 3, if you're in a journal, this will be on page 28 as we continue our series through the Gospel of Luke. We started chapter 3 last week, we'll finish it this week. Straight away, what we'll do is we'll read 15 through 23, okay? 15 through 23, and then we'll make some notes about the rest as we go. So Luke 3 is where we are, where we'll be, 15 through 23, excuse me, 15 through 22, okay? Uh, It'll be behind me on the screen as well. If you got it, say, I got it. All right, let's read this together. Luke 3, starting verse 15, God's word says, as the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Amen. This is God's word. May God write its eternal truths on all of our hearts. I want you to think for a moment. How would you define greatness? How would you define greatness? What qualifies someone to be great in your estimation? And what about for yourself? What would you need to be or do in order to consider yourself great? How do we define greatness in our society? There's a lot of talk, I think, in our culture about greatness. But what does that look like? You know, in business, perhaps we would define greatness as someone who has an important title highly profitable company who makes the right investments and wields significant influence. In politics, perhaps you would define it through a growing power and importance, the ability to get things done. Or maybe even through wealth and prestige in sports, especially this is a big topic, isn't it? Often we debate who the goat, right? Who the goat is, the greatest of all time. And someone who is often talked about in this conversation plays today, doesn't he? Tommy, terrific, right? In sports, perhaps you would define it through championships, or maybe you'd focus more on individual records or awards. In terms of a nation, maybe a great nation would be defined through military might and defeat of the enemy or wealth of its citizens. Greatness is a frequent topic of conversation in our culture, I think. Much of media we intake, such as magazines, websites, and books, tell us how to reach our Greatness, don't they? We're told that greatness should be the goal. 
And then people who supposedly have reached greatness advise us on how we too can be great. So what's that look like? As I asked before, for you as an individual, how would you define greatness for yourself? What would you have to do in order to look at yourself and conclude that you've accomplished greatness? In other words, what would have to happen in your life for you to look back at the end and conclude you lived a great life? The text we have before us this morning deals with greatness, but perhaps not in the way we would expect. It turns out that what greatness looks according to Scripture looks very different than what greatness looks like in our culture or in our business, in our politics, and perhaps even the way we would think about it in our own lives. In other words, perhaps the way we define greatness is misaimed and ill-defined. How this text reveals true greatness is through three characters that it puts before us, one who is great, one who thinks he's great, and one who is the greatest of all, and the proof of his surpassing greatness is evident. And in the midst of all this, my hope is that we will see primarily three important points, starting with, number one, greatness recognizes unworthiness. Point number one, greatness recognizes unworthiness. We left off last time with our friend John the Baptist in the wilderness forerunning the Messiah by preaching, warning, calling the people to repentance and fruit that comes with true repentance and, of course, baptizing for the forgiveness of sins. And this is what he's still doing as we jump in in verse 15. Now, you can imagine that doing the things that John is doing and saying the things that John is saying would attract a considerable amount of attention and questions, yes? The people, you remember, have been in a period of expectation for some time. In fact, since before the events of Luke 1 and 2, they have not heard from God for over 400 years. And on top of that, as we've noted, they are under the tyrannical boot of the Roman Empire and have had just about enough of that. So they are ready for their idea of what the Messiah will be to come on the scene release them from their Roman bondage, and return Israel to its prominence. Even further, there have been messianic pretenders for years and years who have come on the scene, claimed to be the anointed one, or had people thrust that title upon them, only for them to be disappointed every time. (coughs) And this is why Luke says in verse 15, do you see it? As the people were in expectation... Then Luke says, and all were questioning in their heart concerning John, whether what? He might be the Christ. And it makes sense why people would ponder such things. Yes, they've been waiting for the Messiah. They've been expecting him. The scriptures have told of him. Their present moment is creating in them a desire for a champion to come and save them from Rome's oppressive boot. And in the midst of this, this fellow shows up in the wilderness And he's calling them to repent, and he's warning them of coming judgment, and he's challenging the corrupt religious leaders. And so naturally, they're like, is this guy the Christ? And John answers their speculation, doesn't he? John says in verse 16 that he is not the Christ, and he gives three reasons why Jesus is superior to him. Do you see it? (coughs) He is one, stronger and mightier. He is two, brings a better baptism. 
And three, he is a judge with a winnowing fork in his hand, ready to separate the wheat from the chaff. So says John, I am not the Messiah. The one to come is far superior to me in every single way. He says, you think I'm great. I'm not. But let me tell you about someone who is. But honestly, John is great, isn't he? Don't you think? Aren't there things very unique about John that can't be said of anyone else? He's the forerunner to the true Messiah. How many people could say that? Just the one, right? Just the one. He's also conceived miraculously after a visit from the angel Gabriel to his father who announced his birth. Who else could say that? He also has prophesied about in Isaiah like we saw last week. How many people could say that they're literal fulfillment of centuries-old prophecy? But the cherry on top concerning John is that Jesus says in Matthew 11 that among those born of women there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. And then if we jump down to verse 21, we see that Jesus comes and he's baptized by John. How many people have baptized Jesus? Just him. (coughs) And this further confirms John's greatness. Do you know why? Think about it. Have you ever wondered why Jesus got baptized? Have you ever thought about that? I mean, John's baptism was for repentance and forgiveness of sin, but Jesus had no sin, right? He had nothing to repent of. He was perfect in every way. So why the baptism? While Luke doesn't answer that question directly, we know, at the very least, that Jesus is confirming, affirming, and endorsing John and his message. So everything that John has said about repentance and about fruit and about judgment isn't John's opinion. Jesus is confirming the validity of John's ministry and words. And on top of that, Jesus is showing through this that he identifies with people, right? And it provides a space for the Father to testify to to Jesus as his chosen king, an anointed one, and for the Spirit to descend, which launches Jesus into the ministry. So John also gets to be a part of that launching. But even so, when people confuse John for the Messiah, what does John say? Does John bask in the adulation from the crowd? Does he? Does he say, well, yes, I am great, but someone else is greater? Does he do that? Does he glory in high praise of the people whatsoever? No, essentially, he rebukes the people and says, someone is coming who is so great that he is not even worthy to untie his sandals. What does that mean? John is using... Slave terms, where slaves were made to do a great many things, of course, for their masters, including untying their sandals and taking them off for them. However, Jewish slaves were able to do everything and anything their masters told them to do except one thing. Can you guess? Untie their sandals. That was considered too demeaning of a task for a Jewish slave to do. There was even a saying from the rabbis that went like this. Every service which a slave performs for his master shall a disciple do for his teacher except the loosing of his sandal thong. The untying of a sandal was just too much. It was too lowly a task for a slave to do. Darrell Box says this, John is thus saying that he is so inferior to the coming one that he is not worthy to perform even the most menial task for his master. John is not only willing to do what Jewish slaves were unwilling to do, but he sees himself as not even worthy for such a task. 
John, in his greatness, sees himself as nothing compared to Jesus, and he realizes his own unworthiness before God and before God's Christ. Do you see? So John's greatness is tied to his recognition of his own unworthiness. True greatness, biblically speaking, looks at God, looks at self, and realizes that before him, we are unworthy. Unworthy of being in his presence. Unworthy of his good gifts. Unworthy of his salvation. Because it recognizes how incredibly great and holy and transcendent he is. And then it sees their own heart and sin and rebellion. But then, it sees again the grace and love and kindness of Christ. And never moves beyond the awe and the wonder that comes to Offer salvation to the unworthy. Never in our lives, do you agree with me on this? Should we move past being amazed by God's grace? Do you agree? You quiet Baptists, do you agree with that? Growing in Christ isn't growing in confidence of self. It is, in fact, a growing recognition of one's own unworthiness before so great a God. And thus, growing in adoration of Christ. The most mature Christians aren't the ones who are confident in their own ability, gifts, or intellect, nor are they the ones boasting of all their accomplishments, even if they're for God. The most mature Christians are simultaneously the most humble, because the more they grow, the more they are amazed that God would save and sustain even them. And once you get that then you can see that greatness is even found in doing the most menial of tasks. Isn't John saying that he is unworthy to even untie Jesus' sandal? In other words, if Jesus asked him, right, to untie his sandal, he wouldn't look and say, ew, no, how demeaning. What would he say instead? I am unworthy of even this. True greatness in our world may look like being so loaded, right, that you could hire a manservant to clean your house and make your meals and clean your toilets. But true greatness in the kingdom of Christ says that you are willing to do even the most menial, mundane, thankless, difficult task because it benefits others. Because true humility doesn't think about stature or status and it doesn't posture. Even Jesus kneeled down and washed his disciples' feet in order to show that greatness in the kingdom doesn't mean the ability to have others serve you, but what is found in serving others, especially when it's not met with pomp and circumstance or accolades and applause. As I was thinking about this, I also happened to be reading a book this week that I got for like five bucks on thrift books. This will surprise you that I read this. It's called Batman and Philosophy. And there's a chapter, there's really a book about everything, right? And there's a chapter in there about Alfred, you know Alfred, he's a butler. And like his motivation to do what he does for Bruce Wayne and Batman. This is the part that struck out at me. <coughs> this is what it says. It says, taking no part in the notoriety of Bruce Wayne or Batman, Alfred certainly doesn't do it for fame. Rather, we're astounded at his humility, for although Alfred is surely aware of the vital role he plays in the Dark Knight's foyers, he asks for no praise. 
Instead, he remains so humble that on the same day that he changes the tire on the Batmobile, programs Wayne Manor's security system, and reinvents Batman's utility belt, he'll happily clean the toilets as if there's no difference between the tasks. But then the author says that whereas Batman shows us justice as law and peace and fair institutions, Alfred shows us justice of love and devotion. And this kind of love, they say, this kind of justice is inherently unfair because there's never a guarantee that this kind of deed will be reciprocated. That's the kind of love and service that is great in the kingdom of Christ. It's the kind that serves for the sake of service and never looks at a task as beneath them and never desires recognition for the deed done because they know that the Father who sees in secret will reward them. It's the posture of actively desiring last place, which is the opposite of the ethic of the world, isn't it? And the more I think about this, the more I'm convinced A question every church should ask, every pastor or elder or deacon candidate is this. Are you willing to scrub toilets and mop floors and wipe down tables and work in the nursery and pick up trash, whether you're seen or recognized or not? Because if the answer is no and menial service is beneath them, leadership is beyond them. Contrary to what the world wants to tell us, greatness isn't the gaining of more power and more recognition, but the opposite. The most celebrated in the kingdom are also the most unknown and unheralded because the ones Jesus came for are also the ones society ignores the most, as we've seen over and over in just these first three chapters. I mean, you look through, we didn't read the genealogy, but look at your copy of God's Word and just skim the genealogy from 23 to 38. (coughs) Just skim it. Are there names in there you know? David, right? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Are there names in there that you don't know? Aren't there more names that you do not recognize than there are names that you're familiar with? Is that fair to say? All of those unheralded names that we know virtually nothing about, but guess what? They're all in the story of God's plan to bring about the one who would save the world. Take one away. Deem one unimportant, and the genealogy of the promised Messiah utterly falls apart. And perhaps one of the reasons why we may not be drawn to menial and risky that Christ calls us to is because we're afraid no one will see or recognize. If they do see, they'll think the task too lowly for someone of our stature, but heaven knows. Friend, do you know this? Heaven knows and heaven sees. And even if our ordinary faithfulness is forgotten by men, it will never be forgotten by God who sees all and rewards the obedient. He sees you, he knows you, and what's done for the kingdom will echo throughout eternity. In such a case, who needs the applause of men? This should be the posture and mindset of every Christian. Do we want titles, power, prestige, and platform, or do you just want to see Christ exalted? And people benefited, and saints growing in love for the Lord. Spurgeon, 
preach on this text. Let me read you this quote, and then we'll go on to our next point. <laughs> he said, anything for Jesus, the lower the better. Anything for Jesus, the humbler the better. Anything for Jesus. The more going down into the deeps, the more thrusting the arms up to the elbows in the mud to find out precious jewels, the more of that, the better. This is the true spirit of the Christian religion. Not the soaring up there to sit among the choirsters and singing in grand style. Not the putting on of apparel and preaching in lawn sleeves. Not the going through gaudy and imposing ceremonies. All of that is of Babylon. But to strip yourself to the shirt sleeves, to fight the battle for Christ, and to go out among men as a humble worker, resolved by any means to save some, this is what your Lord would have you do. For this is the unloosing the latches of his shoes. This is greatness, to see one's life and say, I am unworthy of Christ, but he loves me still. And such grace and such an example of the Lord of all things, stooping to get to me, calls for a stooping as a way of life for the kingdom. This is where greatness is found. Greatness recognizes unworthiness and is willing to do the menial if it would benefit others in the kingdom and risking status and recognition and standing and accolades because this posture is so other-focused that it needs nothing but the approval of King Jesus, which it has. Our second point is related to this, point number two. Greatness risks and points to another. Greatness risks and points to another. In verse 18, Luke offers this summary statement, which he'll tend to do. He says, so with many exhortations, John preached the good news to the people. But then in verse 19, he takes us forward in time to when John is arrested, right? So we must note that chronologically, John is not arrested here, all right? but will be arrested later. Luke likely gives this information because he desires for the rest of the gospel to be all about Jesus, okay? To focus utterly on him. But he also wants us to know that John was arrested and later executed, as you know, because of his preaching. <coughs> Why was John arrested? He was arrested because he dared call out the sins of the powerful. Is that not what he got arrested for? Herod, you understand who he mentions, married Herodias, who was his half-brother's wife. And so this marriage ended two marriages because Herod happened to be married at the same time also. So not only are two marriages destroyed, but Herod marries the wife of a near-blood relative, which is forbidden in Leviticus 18 and 20. John recognized the sin of this, was unimpressed with Herod and his position and power, and called him on this. Daryl Bach explains, the faithfulness of John's preaching dominated the passage. Such faithfulness led to arrest, but God's moral standards were not to be left behind for the sake of personal safety. Luke portrays John as the first of many servants of God who will suffer at the hands of those who reject the message. So John's fierce loyalty to the kingdom of God gets him in trouble. He sees sin, and he calls it out. It doesn't matter to him, right, who it is, because John serves a higher authority than any man. But you know as well as I do that some cannot stomach God's message confronting their approach to life. Isn't that true? Sometimes sinners respond with hostility when their sin is called sin. Sin is ugly, yes? 
But some cannot stand to have it exposed even when forgiveness is offered at the same time like we see here. This goes directly with what we talked about last week in the topic of repentance. Many don't repent because they would rather defend their sin or bail or respond with hostility when it's called out rather than seeing the freedom of forgiveness in Christ and just admitting sin and repenting and working to kill it. As Spurgeon said, the same sun that melts wax hardens clay. And the same gospel which melts some persons to repentance hardens others in their sins. Herod's heart is like clay. The preaching of repentance and forgiveness of sin made his heart hard when it should have melted it. What we must see here is also that John is willing to risk for the truth of the gospel. Isn't that fair to say? Greatness in the kingdom risks because obedience is costly. The temptation in our lives and in our churches is to play it safe, right? Is that true? To play it safe, lest faithfulness cost too much, is not of God. You know that? It's not reflected in the gospel of Christ, which calls us to take up our crosses and die daily. The impulse to play it safe and to maximize comfort is more American than it is Christian. Christ calls us to risk. He calls us to go all in on his kingdom and call, to reject the safety of status quo and embrace the urgent because while the world wants to live for the next 15 and 10 or 15 years, we live for the next 10,000. John knew that calling out the sin of the petulant and insecure ruler could cost him. And it ended up costing him his head. But he was willing to take the risk and pay the price because he had already pledged his head to heaven. What John will not do is trade in the gospel for anything. Not for political expediency. Not for favor in the culture or with people. And not even at the expense of his own neck. Can the same be said for you, I wonder? Would you trade the gospel for any of those things, would you? Would you trade the gospel for anything? Let me hear it. Would you? The silence is frightening. Would you trade the gospel for anything? You know, perhaps nothing has worked to hinder the work of the church in North America more than its love of comfort and safety. Faithfulness is costly, so we embrace the pragmatic and the easy waters of the way things are, but Christ calls us to something better. The world might remember the great ones as the ones who pursued their own fame and fortune, but the ones next to the throne of Christ in heaven are the ones forgotten by history, all because they gave their all to the gospel in response to Christ's beauty and grace. You know, examples of this, those willing to risk for the gospel and their lasting effect abound, right? Jim Elliott, you know Jim Elliott, right? Lottie Moon, Adoniram Judson, William Carey, and on and on. I think we look at them and we look at Christ's call and sacrifice to risk in our lives and others, and we think, well, those are exceptional cases, right? But friend, what if they aren't? What if those who risk and go and give up things for, them, for, of the, for themselves are the model of true and ordinary discipleship? Have you ever thought about that? I think of C.T. Studd. Does anybody know C.T. Studd? Is that name familiar with any of you? (coughs) He was a wealthy Englishman 
You know what he did? He sold everything he had to take the gospel to the nations. He sold everything he had. Many people, including other Christians and his family, tried to dissuade him from going overseas. But guess what? He went anyway. First he went to China, then he went to India, and when he was 50, he went to Sudan where he spent the rest of his life. This is what David Platt says. He says his grave would become the stepping stone for the worldwide evangelization crusade which spread gospel seeds all across Africa, Asia, and South America. What if Stud had been content with the safety of his riches and comfort and retirement in England? What if he listened to those people who told him it wasn't worth the risk? The gospel wouldn't have spread in those hard-to-reach places when it did, would it? I want you to listen to Stud's own words. He said, too long have you been waiting for one another to begin. The time for waiting is past. Since such men as we fear, before the whole world, I, before the sleepy, lukewarm, faithless, namby-pamby Christian world, we dare to trust our God. And we'll do it with his joy unspeakably singing aloud in our hearts. We will a thousand times sooner die trusting only in our God than living trusting in man. And we come to this position, the battle is already won, and the end of the glorious campaign in sight. We will have the real holiness of God, not the sickly stuff of talk and dainty words and petty thoughts. We will have a masculine holiness of one daring faith and works for Christ. Stud and John were willing to risk because they had confidence in the one to come who was mightier than they. Confidence in the one who baptized with the Holy Spirit and fire, who has his winnowing fork in his hand to separate the wheat from the chaff, the one who brings good news to all people. Once you know that, you belong to so great a king. What can the world do to you? Huh? What can the world do to you? You know the worst thing that could happen to you? Do you know? You die. And then where are you going to be? With Christ. Right? Once you know you belong to so great a king, what can the world do? What can be too costly where we look and say, that's a bridge too far? The reason we risk is because we're pointing to someone who is worthy of all risk and devotion and love and worship. Isn't this what John is doing? He was continually pointing to Jesus, telling people of his greatness. John's greatest desire is for people to see how incredible Jesus is and give, them, give him their devotion. <coughs> Why else does he say, I'm unworthy to untie his sandals? He's saying, the most menial, subservient task is not beneath me, but above me when it comes to this king. Herod thinks he's powerful, thinks he's worthy of adulation and ignoring of his wrong deeds, but I'll call him out. And I'll tell him how he's transgressed God, whereas this carpenter from this bad town is so incredibly great that I don't even deserve to be in his presence. This is how the gospel flips things as they seem on their head, doesn't it? You think again about greatness in your life. Is there anything greater you can do in this vapor's worth of life than to leverage your life to point people to Christ? Is there anything greater? Is there anything greater we could do as a church than just point people to the glory of Christ? Is that not far superior as a primary goal than pragmatism and entertainment, full auditoriums, or dependence on programs? All of our lives as Christians and as a church should have this as our aim, pointing to Christ. Isn't that better? 
so that others can behold him. Because we should have confidence in the gospel that it will be enough to draw and sustain people. We should have confidence that God has called us to shine the light directly on Christ and that he does not need our added extra biblical ingenuity or people pleasing. What could be a loftier goal than pointing people to behold the glory of so great a Christ? I wonder, is that your aim in your life? To point people to Jesus? Do you want people to see him or you? Do you want people to be impressed by you or by him? Does your fruit point to you or to Christ? You know, when I got orders to be stationed in Alaska, they were given to me so late. They just sat on this jabroni's desk for like months, and I didn't even know I had them, okay? They're giving me so late that Sila Ariel, who's six months old at the time, and I had to drive from Colorado Springs to Anchorage in November. And this is before GPS was on your phone, all right? So your boy had to print out the map quests, you know what I'm saying? And along the way, in our over 3,000-mile drive, we saw many signs. Can you imagine? And you know what? I depended on those signs. And, and I paid attention to those signs to point me where I needed to go. But you know what else? I don't remember a single one of them. I don't remember one. And what was their purpose? To draw attention to themselves or to point the way? And it didn't matter if the sign was new or old or weather-beaten or dirty or slightly bent because it served the same purpose, to point me the way. Well, you know what else I saw? Hundreds, if not thousands, of billboards. What do they do? They're different than signs, aren't they? They want you to pay more attention to them than to a plain old road sign. They want you to look and consider and be taken in by them. In our lives, we should be more like road signs and less like billboards. Our desire isn't for people to stop and stare and be impressed by us. Our desire should be to simply point the way to the true destination, the true prize, the true point of everything, and who is that? It's Jesus. Ask yourself, how, how do you spend your time and your thoughts and energy and resources and words? Are they for you or for Christ? Like, I gotta check my own self for this. For your kingdom or his? For your advantage or his glory and fame? John sees Jesus as so extraordinarily great that he feels unworthy to do the most menial task for him. Can the same be said of you? And does it show? How great do you see Jesus? Is there anything that Jesus can call you to that you deem beneath you or unworthy of you? Are you risking for Jesus in your life? Is your devotion to him costing you? And shouldn't it? Do you realize how great he is? We can forget, can't we? Especially when we get, we get bogged down in our own stuff and our own schedules, the business of our lives. And hopefully you're reminded every Sunday when you come here, which is what we desire to accomplish, of course, and why you should prioritize the weekly gatherings is non-negotiable for your life. Jesus is extraordinarily great. Yes? Can I get a witness? Do you make reminding this of yourself your daily work?
because we should. Well, let's, let's wrap up by, with our third point by considering Christ's greatness. Our third and final point, greatness personified is what we'll call it. The greatness of Christ is absolutely all over this passage, isn't it? When people wonder if John is the Christ, he says, no, the one to come is greater, he's mightier, he is special, because while I baptize you with water, his baptism brings the Holy Spirit and purifying fire and division, and he alone is the judge with a winning fork in his hand. But then we see John baptized Jesus, and what happens? <coughs> Heaven opens, the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus like a dove, and a voice comes from heaven that says what? You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. He's greater, isn't he? By showing us this scene, Luke is reminding us again that Jesus is God's anointed king. He is the unique son of God. His baptism of fire and his winnowing fork show that what matters in the end is whether one recognizes Christ's special position as God's salvation or not. That's what matters in the end. He's showing us that with heaven opening... That God is stepping out of heaven and entering into the everyday life of people. That, that he is taking the initiative to get to those in need of redemption like you and like me. And he's doing that through one and only one person in history. The God-man Jesus, the greatest of all. Friend, do you see the lengths at which God is willing to get to unworthy people like you and me? I mean, do you see it? He comes into the earth in the most humble means possible. Then he comes to the water to identify with the masses. And then we see through this genealogy of 23 through 38 that he can identify with us too through having a human lineage. But check this out, okay? I want you to consider this genealogy again. Who's mentioned here? You know some names, right? David, Jacob, Isaac, Abraham. Why? Because Jesus comes to fulfill the Davidic covenant, covenant as one who will occupy the throne forever and ever, and the Abrahamic covenant as one who will bless the nations and bring in people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And then I want you to consider the uniqueness of this genealogy and its placement. You know, Matthew starts his gospel with a genealogy, doesn't he? And then Luke puts in our chapter 3 between Jesus' baptism and his tempting in the wilderness. And Luke has the only genealogy that goes all the way back to Adam. Did you notice that in verse 38? <coughs> Matthew doesn't do this. The son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. What do we make of all this? We're being shown that Jesus is the head of a new humanity who will succeed where Adam failed as he creates a new people for God's own possession. This is why Luke goes all the way back to Adam in this genealogy, because what does it say in verse 38 again? The son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Everyone else is the son of this fella, the son of that fella, and then we get to Adam, and he's the son of God. He has no human father. And what does God say of Jesus in verse 22? You are my beloved son, in whom I'm well pleased. Outside of Jesus, only Adam is given the title son of God. Outside of Adam, only one person has no human father. Outside of Adam, only one person is the head of a new humanity. This Jesus is the greatest of all humans to ever live. Because when he goes into the wilderness in chapter 4, and the devil comes and tempts him, he has none of it. And he succeeds where Adam failed, for you. 
Don't you see that God was not content to let us as languish as miserable sons of Adam who would deservingly be crushed for our rebellion before the foundation of the world. Our triune God, which we see explicitly in 21 and 22, decided that Jesus would come and start a new people and he's inviting you in. And the signs are all over the place here of this new humanity. You think of the dove. The Holy Spirit isn't actually a dove, of course. Luke says he's like a dove here in the way he descends to Christ. What do we see in Genesis 1-2? Don't we see this familiar language when God created all things hovering like a dove over the face of the deep when the, the, the world was flooded and it was a type of recreation? What do we see as one of the signs in Genesis 8? A dove. Combine that with the language of Jesus being the Son of God in a superior way to Adam who was the Son of God and you have all the signs that Jesus means to create the world and people. And he's the only one capable. And that is why he is greatness personified. And that is why our whole lives and church should be absolutely sold out to his cause and fame. There is no one greater. He means to recreate the world and he's inviting you to come in and join him on that mission. Is there anything you could live for and die for greater than this, friend? Because you know this all came at a price, don't you? You know, there's another Old Testament allusion here we might miss. Do you remember when God called Adam to sacrifice Isaac on Mount Moriah? Do you remember how God said it? Take your son, your only son, whom you love, and offer him as a burnt offering. Every word of that was intentional. And every word of that was a twisting of knife. Take your son, your only son, whom you love, and sacrifice him. No explanation. The son you've been waiting for all of your life, the one who is to bear the promise, the one you love dearly, go sacrifice him. Can you imagine what that would have felt like? And we know the story. Just before Abraham brings the knife down, an angel of the Lord stops him and says, God will provide another. Now what do we have in Luke 3? God declaring that Jesus is his son, his only son whom he loves. But this time, God will not stay the hand of the executioner. His son, again, this is a twisting of the knife to show you the depths of God's love for you. His only son, whom he loves, will be executed on behalf of his enemies, namely you and me. Friend, do you understand that on your own, that apart from God, we would never ever hear this from God, this is my son, this is my daughter, in whom I'm well pleased. On our own, we would never hear that. We would only hear, depart from me, I don't know you. Because nothing we could do can please God by our own might, not because he is unduly harsh or his standards are too rigid, but because he is too holy to allow uncleanness in his presence and we have freely rebelled against him. But in Christ, because God is pleased with him, if we repent and give him our allegiance as God's king because he's the head of new humanity, because he succeeded where Adam failed, because he died in our place as the atoning, unblemished land, we will hear at the end of our lives, this is my son.
This is my daughter, in whom I am well pleased. And why? Because of your greatness? No, because of his. Because he came and identified with us, because he stood in our place as the proverbial knife came down on him on Mount Moriah, and because there is no one greater. Jesus' greatness and love cannot be contended with because not only does all that we've seen show us that Jesus is anointed of God, the chosen one, the true king, and the bringer of a better creation, it shows us that Jesus is the point of all of human history. From Abraham, Adam to Noah to Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to David to Solomon to Joseph to Jesus, he is the point of all things. And I wonder, in light of all of this, is he the point of your history? His greatness, undeniable. His glory, unmatchable. His grace, unending. And his kingdom is unquestionably greater than any other that has, does, or will exist. And he invites you to be part of it. Tell me, what can you give yourself over to that's greater? You want to be great? Point the world to this king. In this kingdom. Don't you see? You and I deserve to be tossed like chaff in the wind to be collected, to be put in the fire, and this king has every right to treat us as such. And yet, and yet, and yet, he is so maximally loving and gracious that he extends to you a nail-pierced hand for you to be part of his kingdom and to share in his riches and to be recreated into his image and to be called God's beloved child and to be omniscient for his fame. What's better than that? And he has given you this time to make a choice. Because make no mistake, the end is coming. But he gave you this day, this time to choose. So what will it be? If you've never given your allegiance to him, and you're living on your own greatness or for your own kingdom, he's calling you in this moment to bend knee to him. And he'll be faithful to rescue you, just like he promised and you begin to live for something truly great. If you have, if you're here and you said, yes, I've converted, yes, I've given my allegiance to Jesus, what does that look like in your life? Are you risking for him? Are you pointing people to him? Are you stooping in order to serve him? Do you see his greatness like John did? The true king has come, the winnowing fork is in his hand. Will you let that give you urgency in your evangelism and urgency in giving your life and your time and your service and your energy and your everything to him? Today's the day to make that choice. And I beg you make the right one. This week, as I was studying, I came across a sermon from Charles Spurgeon where he preached just verse 16. And I'd like to end here with these words that ended his powerful message with. So let me read you this quote and then we'll pray. This is what Spurgeon said. He said, Certain Moravian missionaries in the old times of slavery went to one of the West Indian islands to preach, and they could not be permitted to teach there unless they themselves became slaves. And they did so. They sold themselves into bondage, never to return that they might save slave souls. We have heard of another pair of holy men who actually submitted to be confined in a leper's house that they might save the souls of lepers, knowing as they did that they would never be permitted to come out again. They went there to take the leprosy and to die. 
if by doing so they might save souls. I've read of one who went to Barbary among the Christian captives and there lived and died in banishment and bondage that he might cheer his brothers and sisters and preach Jesus to them. Beloved, we have never reached to such devotion. We fall far short of what Jesus deserves. We give him little. We give him what we're ashamed not to give him. Often we give our zeal for a day or two and then grow cool. We wake up all of a sudden and then sleep all the more suddenly. We seem today as if we would set the world on fire. And tomorrow we scarcely keep our own lamp trimmed. We vow at one time that we will push the church before us and drag the world after us, but by and by we ourselves are like Pharaoh's chariots with the wheels taken off and drag along right heavily. Oh, for a spark of the love of Christ in the soul. Oh, for a living flame from off Calvary's altar to set our whole nature blazing with divine enthusiasm for the Christ who gave himself for us that we might live. From this hour on, take upon yourselves in the solemn intent of your soul this deep resolve. I will loosen the sandal straps. I will seek out the little things, the mean things, the humble things, and I will do them as unto the Lord and not unto men. And may we accept he accept me even as he saved me through his precious blood. Let this be our prayer today and every day for the glory of so great a God and King.